So, we are, I got the book, it's pretty cool. I can't, like, deal with these virtual books. It's a problem, though, because moving books is very challenging. And buying too many books is also very challenging. <laughs> yeah, just eventually you run out of space, as Edgar knows. <laughs> it's like very challenging. Alhamdulillah. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin fil awaleen wa salli alayhi fil akhirin wa salli alayhi. Ya Rabbana fil malain a'la ila yawmiddin. Salatu wa salamu alayki ya Sayyidi ya Rasulullah. قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفعنا الله إياه بعلمه في دارين أمين. Section three. The knowledge of devotional practice. The knowledge of devotional practice. So uh, to give us a little bit reminder, he was talking about the different kinds of knowledge that are obligatory, and those kinds of knowledge that are uh, obligatory on the individual versus obligatory on the community. And then he gave kind of a breakdown of the different categorization uh, of knowledge. If you're paying attention really deeply from the first time when we started, you might have noticed that there's slight differences in some of the way that he categorized this versus maybe it's like some other people. Um, but that's okay, they're just slight differences. There's, you can have, um, it's like if you went to two specialists on the heart, they'd agree with maybe 90% of things, and then in the last 10%, they might have a different opinion. It's okay. They agreed on the 90%. You're in the category now of things that you can differ on. So when it comes to like, how do we categorize areas of learning? What's a foundational issue versus a secondary issue? What's a tool versus a, you know, you might find some difference here and there. It's okay. As long as we understand the general point. So now he's getting into matters of the heart. So there was, um, he talked about how there's obligatory matters that relate to beliefs, and there's obligatory matters that relate to actions, and obligatory matters that relate to abstentions. Do you remember this? So now he's going to get into another category. He says, the knowledge of devotional practice deals with the states of the heart, ahwal and qalb, and that includes the states of fear, khawf, hope, raja, contentment, rida, truthfulness, sidq, and sincerity, ikhlas. Uh, the translator put all of these in Arabic for a reason, and that's because they're kind of like essential terms in the world of Islamic spirituality. So, you know, as, uh, as we've talked about before, in any discipline there are key terms, and uh, in the realm of spirituality, these are kind of like key terms. So it's good to kind of get to know them a little bit. Khawf is usually fear. And um, hope is raja. Contentment is rida. Raja is different than tamanni, they always say in Arabic, okay? So tamanni is different than raja. Raja is something that you hope for in the future, and it's a reasonable expectation. Tamanni is something you hope for, but it's actually 
very unlikely, if not impossible, that it will actually happen. So there's a difference between these two terms. Um, <coughs> and truthfulness, sidq, contentment, rida, ikhlas is sincerity. Contentment is very important because, as we've talked about before, um, you know, the real issue in everyday life is to try to attain some level of contentment. It's not necessarily that we're happy about everything that happens. Obviously, you know, there's things that happen, we're not happy about them. They don't bring us joy per se. But we do have a level of contentment with them from the angle that it's from the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I have to do my best with whatever that decree is. I might not be happy about it, you know. Maybe someone's child is acting in ways that they don't want them to act. Okay, well, I'm going to do my best, but it, what's happening is happening. Maybe there's a world political situation that will give help to our brothers and sisters and, um, in Gaza. And it can be very difficult. And at the same time, we realize that there's a decree in this. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. It means I have also an obligation. How do I respond to this decree? Of course, I have a new obligation in every single moment. But at the same time, I recognize that there are things that are out of my control. And there are things that are in my control. And I work accordingly. Uh, this is the knowledge that raised the status of the renowned scholars and through mastering it made them famous like Sufyan Abu Hanifa Malik Shafi'i and Ahmed. So what he's saying here is important and we've said this before. Is that, uh, you know, and again I've uh, used this one a lot where people will say, oh so and so is a practicing Muslim, they pray five times a day. And I always tell them, well like praying five times a day is just kind of like baseline what a Muslim is supposed to do. That doesn't differentiate them in that way, you know? Not, this is not to make anyone guilt trip, it's to understand that this is not a differentiation. It's, and I said this recently, it's like one of the kids in my class, he told me, he said, if I do everything that I'm supposed to do, and, you know, just fulfill the minimums in Islam, I'm all right, right? I said, yeah, you're all right, you just got to see in the class. He was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you're fine, but you just got to see. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? I was like, all you did was the absolute minimum that you had to do. You didn't go beyond that in any sort of way. So you passed, but you, you know, if you want more than that, then you have to do more than that. And so what he's saying here is that these great scholars of Islam, you know, what differentiated them was not only that they were great scholars. What differentiated with them was that they were people of tremendous piety and taqwa. Um, one brother told me he, he visited uh, Iraq recently and one of the places that he was able to go to was the place where Imam Abu Hanifa is buried and he said that like the feeling of all of his worries going away and all of his difficulties vanishing and just complete contentment and peace that he found when he went to Imam Abu Hanifa was only a couple places were similar obviously Medina was similar he went to Medina after that, he went to Medina, he felt a similar kind of like tranquility and ease. And also he, in that trip, he went to uh, the burial places of a lot of people. Uh, one of them was also Sheikh Amul Qadir Jilani. But Imam Ahmed, Baghdad is a lot, subhanAllah. Imam Ahmed is there, Junaid is there, Salik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, many, many people. Anyways, the point is that these were people of piety. 
However, the reason some jurists and scholars have failed to reach the level of the aforementioned men is the fact that they have become occupied with knowledge at its superficial level without striving to grasp its true reality and act upon its in-depth meanings. So the people are limited if they attain knowledge, but they didn't attain what they were supposed to attain from that knowledge. It's meant to bring a person closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will see a jurist talking about the har and the an and the rulings of competing, sabq and shooting, rami, and branching out to detailed issues that take ages to discuss without actually needing any of them. So basically these are matters of fiqh, you know, different kinds of divorce, different kinds of um, issues in fiqh that they're talking about, but they're not, they get swallowed up in that world. But still you will not see him talking about sincerity and warning against showing off, even though this is an individual obligation upon him. And neglecting it will ruin him while the other topics he discusses are communal obligations. If someone asked this scholar about his reasons for not addressing the need for sincerity and showing off, he would not be able to provide an answer. But were he to be asked why he is occupying himself with issues of the ni'an and shooting, he would say, these topics are a communal obligation. This is of course correct, but what he fails to realize is that mathematics too is a communal obligation. So why is he not occupied with that? The truth is that his soul has glamorized the matter for him as its desire for ostentation and fame is fulfilled through debating, not mathematics. Mm. SubhanAllah. So what is he getting at here? What he's getting at here is that matters of sincerity and not showing off and stuff like this, they're matters that are individually obligatory upon everybody. But he's saying the scholar will get into these areas, these detailed areas of Islamic law or whatever else it might be, and what's occupying them is actually their desire to show off and the glamour and the fame that comes from talking about such things. And the proof of that is that if you were to ask them, why are you talking about this? They would say, it's a communal obligation, we have to talk about it. And if you were to ask them, then why don't you talk about mathematics? They wouldn't have an answer for it. And mathematics is a communal obligation too. Well, what is the main point that he's getting at? There's a couple layers of it. Uh, number one is that to recognize that in this time, he's in a similar time, I mean, it's 200 years later, but it's a similar time of Imam Ghazali. Imam Ghazali, he says that, for example, in his time, medicine is a communal obligation and Islamic studies is a communal obligation. And he was complaining in his time that everybody was going into Islamic studies and nobody was studying medicine. Because all of the fame and the societal rank and all of these kind of things laid in the hands of the scholars. So they would go and study these things and they wouldn't do medicine. He's like, and the medicine's a communal obligation too. It's better for them. We have enough scholars. We need people to do medicine. It would be better if they did medicine, right? So we have to understand that Ibn Qudama here is living in a similar time where this person who's in this, and, and even though, you know, it's interesting because as a community we understand like at some level we don't live in that time Right? Like in certain pockets, obviously, the fame and the prestige and everything is in everything else. Like if someone was a great businessman, if they're a great doctor, if they're a great uh, whatever, you know, engineer or something else, it's very respectable and everyone looks at them highly and stuff and the imam is just the imam. But in some ways it's still there. Because 
definitely in certain pockets of our community, there's still a lot of respect and prestige that goes to the imam. So it's, the point is in the end though, is that the issue is, where is the person's occupation with the problems of the heart? That's the issue. The main occupation here has to be, why is a person doing what they're doing? Are they doing it so that they can be respected and appreciated and held in high esteem and so on? Or are they doing it for some other reason? And, uh, you know, these things are very tricky. These things are very tricky. <coughs> One of the reasons why it's so important to read these books, not only for the general Muslims, uh, for us to all benefit from it, but it's also important for us to understand the way that people of knowledge and piety work. You know, because if we don't understand it, then it makes it even more difficult for us to benefit from it. Because the default will always be, I shouldn't say always, the default will generally be that people won't put themselves out there. And um, that's out of concern for their own selves. There are exceptions, of course, you know. Uh, there's great imams who put themselves out there. And they understood that if they didn't, the harm in that would be greater than if they didn't. You know, it's, it's a calculus. But it's a very tricky matter. And we've said this before, but, you know, that's one of the things that Ibn Abi Jamrah, radiallahu ta'ala, anhu, he says about uh, the beginning of the revelation. The hadith of the beginning of revelation when the Prophet wasallam, revelation comes to him and then he goes, what does he do? First thing he does. After it comes to him, what does he do? Ibn Abi Jamrah says some amazing things on this hadith, by the way. He has like 40 or 50 points, beneficial points from this one hadith. The hadith, the revelation begins, what does he do? Hmm? He goes to Khadija. He flees to Khadija, right? After the whole incident with Jibril, he runs down the mountain, he goes down, he goes straight into the arms of his wife. Ibn Abi Jamrah says, this is an evidence that when a person is afflicted by something, they should resort to the methods that they're accustomed to resorting to in order to make themselves feel better. It's very interesting. If you were to use modern terminology on it, it's basically saying that a person should understand the different techniques that they have for self-care. And if they're afflicted by something, they should rush to their technique of self-care. And what he's saying is one of the techniques the Prophet had was that he would be close with his wife. He would go to his wife and he would trust her and he would spend that time with her and be vulnerable with her. And that would help him to regulate what's going on with himself. Ibn Abi Jamrah says this. He's like this period, 700 years ago-ish. Um, and he also says uh, that then what does the Prophet say to Sayyidah Khadija? He says to her, I'm afraid that it's like a jinn, I'm afraid that I'm afflicted by some sort of insanity, maybe I'm losing my mind. He starts telling her these things, and she says, Kalna, no way. You, you know, you, this is from Allah, because you do this and you do this and you do this, and she starts to marry. It's actually like, you want an important incident for marriage? This thing, it needs a lot of reflection, actually. Like, first of all, he could trust her, he could go to her. Second of all, she didn't become unregulated in his dysregulation. You know, if you can say that, obviously the Prophet is the Prophet, so we don't want to take things too far. But he is a little bit dysregulated in a sense. He can go to her and he can trust her. And she can immediately respond with his good qualities. She's like, no, that's not what's happening. You take care of the poor and you help those who are in need and you help the one who's oppressed 
and you maintain your family relationships. She says, immediately enumerate his good qualities. And he's like, wow, subhanAllah. And then she immediately knows, who, sh who can we go talk to? And not only does she tell him, you should go talk to him, she actually takes him and goes and talks to this person that they can talk to. Right? And makes a respectful introduction, even though they know each other. Uh, there's a, Ibn Abi Jamra, anhu, like this work of his, I don't know if it'll ever get translated. I don't know if it'll work in translation. It would need a lot of footnotes, but it's an incredible book. Because um, the stuff he says here, like for example, uh, Sayyidah Khadija, you, you read his commentary in this hadith, and it's very brief. It's like on the classical model of hadith, which is like, the first benefit is this. It'll give you one sentence, and you're like, wow, I need to think about that for a little bit. Second sentence, give you, and you know, they hit you with that for like four pages, you know? And he says, Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha, she comes to Waraqa. Waraqa is her cousin, right? It's her cousin, but he's old, right? In the Arab culture, if you're dealing with introducing someone who's younger to someone who's older, the way that you show respect to the older person is to refer to the younger person as your son, right? You would say, like, this is your son, came he has a situation, can you help him? That's how you would normally do it. It creates a direct up and down uh, relationship, right? Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha, when she comes to Waraqa, she's already a believer, by the way. I believe in some of the people, they said this. I actually believe Sayyidah Khadija knew the Prophet was to be the Prophet when she married him. That's why, because she knew Waraqa, she knows her cousin, Waraqa is saying there's a prophet who's coming because Waraqa knew as soon as it happened Waraqa knew he knew exactly what to do they, everyone in, you know like when a situation happens and everyone in the situation knows what to do everyone in this situation knew what to do Khadija knew exactly how to respond she knew exactly who to take him to Waraqa knew exactly what to say like everybody was already on <laughs> they were already on the minhaj so to speak like they were, they were already on the train so Khadija, when she sees the Prophet she hears about the Prophet why is she going and considering this man who doesn't have social status doesn't have wealth is so much younger than her so all of these things, why is she doing it? because she knows from her cousin and the fee bisharat like there's signs that this, this man is something special so then she takes him to Waraqa what does she say to Waraqa? she can't say actually Oh, grandfather, oh, esteemed elderly person, this is your son, he has this situation, I'm bringing him to you. What advice do you have? She can't say that. Because this is Rasulullah She already knows that. So she tells Waraqa, this is your nephew, he came to you, he has an issue. So she maintains the verticality of it, while at the same time, kind of like separating it a little bit, so that she's not taking too much She's giving respect to the elderly person, but she's not taking respect away from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I say to Khadija, Aqila, she is unbelievable, radiAllahu taala anha. So, anyways, why am I saying all of this? Oh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. One of the things Ibn Abi Jamal says when the Prophet sallallahu goes to Khadija and he says, uh, "I'm afraid that I've lost my mind. I'm afraid that this happened. This happened." He says. If you think about it, you actually know that the Prophet ﷺ had extremely good reason 
to believe that he is not any of these things, he's Rasulullah He has very good reason. Because he also has had Mubashirat. He also has had these good tidings have already happened to him. He, he can walk around Mecca, the, the stones are saying salam to him. They're saying assalamu alaikum ya Rasulullah. <laughs> he's had all of these things happen to him. He's had these dreams that are coming true. He's had, he's had all of the indications that he is the Prophet But how does he respond to the situation? Not to assume that he's the Prophet So there's a level of like, why am I saying all of it? There's this level of humility. Gives you an insight. Like why would, maybe someone believes that I have a right to this position. And they're absolutely justified in believing that they have a right to that position. And at the same time, they won't take the position. Unless it's given to them. Because you know, I'm not going to put myself out there like that, or Fulan is not going to put themselves out there like that, or whatever else it might be. You know, may Allah forgive us. I'm, by the way, as usual, I'm lecturing myself. <laughs> this is a very, very relevant and uh, very important passage for me to read. Actually, this paragraph and this reflections touch on at least two or three things that are happening right now in my life. So this is the blessing of uh, these people. It's amazing. So he says at the end, the truth is that his soul has glamorized the matter for him as its desire for ostentation and fame is fulfilled through debating, not through mathematics. Know that the meanings of some words have been replaced and distorted to mean things that the pious predecessors did not mean with them. For example, today's scholars have given an exclusive meaning to the word fiqh, using it exclusively for the science of jurisprudence and its causative factors. It's ilm. Even though the first generation understood the word to refer to the knowledge of the afterlife, the details of the heart's illnesses, the nullifiers of actions, the intense awareness of this world's pettiness, the deep yearning of the bliss of the afterlife, and making the fear of Allah dominate the heart. I'll come back to this. This is why Al-Hasan, Al-Basri, oftentimes if they say Al-Hasan, and they're referring to early people, and they don't tell you who it is, you can kind of assume that it's in Hassan al-Basri. Uh, may Allah have mercy on him said, a possessor of fiqh is one who abstains from this world and desires the afterlife. He is a person who has insight regarding his religion and is constant in worshiping his Lord. He is cautious in fear of Allah, refrains from violating the honor of other Muslims, abstains from their wealth, and gives them sincere advice. They would use the word fiqh for the knowledge that pertains to the afterlife more as it did not refer exclusively to passing legal verdicts, which was one of the things it covered. But this specification of the meaning has deceived some people to focus solely on legal at verdicts that pertain to the outward practices of Islam and neglect the knowledge of working for the afterlife. So now he's bringing up this idea that we've talked about before, which is that words can take on different meanings in different contexts and at different times. And so, whenever we're reading text, we have to understand that that could be happening. The first example that he uses is the word fiqh. So the Prophet ﷺ says, for example, مَنْ يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينِ The person who Allah wants good for them, He gives them fiqh of the religion. Some people might read that and they think that this means the person who Allah wants good for them, He makes them a scholar of the sharia. 
Because that's what we understand fiqh to be, right? How do I pray? How do I worship? How do I do business transactions? How do I do this? How do I do that? That's fiqh, right? Laws of outward actions. That's fiqh as we understand it today. But when the Prophet says this, that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to something much broader than that, which is a general understanding of the religion. A general deep, and under, deep understanding of the religion. And this is why even, you know, uh, even someone as early as Imam Abu Hanifa radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he said, Al-fiqh ma'rifutu nafs ma laha wa ma'alayha. This was his definition of fiqh. His definition of fiqh was the knowledge of the self, what is for it and what is against it. It's not specific to rules, right? So this could apply to the heart, could apply to matters of the afterlife. It all applies because it's the knowledge of what the person uh, is, going to, is going to benefit them in the next life. So the point is we just understand that words can change in their meaning. And it's good to keep like some level of gradation of that in our minds. That, you know, uh, certain terminologies maybe didn't exist until certain points. We might use them now, but maybe people before didn't have them. Uh, just keeping that in mind. The second word is ilm, knowledge. Before, this word referred to knowledge about Allah and His signs, meaning His blessings and actions that pertain to His servants, but they, give, but they gave it an almost exclusive meaning and said that a person of knowledge is he who debates about matters of jurisprudence even if he is ignorant of Qur'anic exegesis and hadith. Okay? So again, it becomes like the person is a person of knowledge, they're, a person, they're an alim, if they have certain kinds of learning. While they could be ignorant completely of other things, but that would be problematic. Right? Um, there's many areas of Islamic studies that would make a person knowledgeable or not. And also part of the definition in the Qur'an of this word for knowledge, as we've talked about many times, is that it indicates that a person acts upon what they know. And if they don't act upon it, then they don't have knowledge. The third word is tawheed, monotheism. This word is used to refer, used to refer to view, uh, this word used to refer to view. Okay, this word used to refer to the understanding that everything that happens is from Allah in a manner that makes one to forget about means and intermediaries. The fruit of this understanding is reliance, tawakkul, on the divine and contentment, rida, with his decree. But now it refers to philosophical theology which is disapproved by the pious predecessors. Okay, so he's going to take his position. Uh, some of the Hanbalis were very against Kanan. So... This, to, to summarize this is, is, is an impossibility. But uh, essentially, when you have the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and um, he teaches everyone what they need to know about Allah and about matters of belief, right? And then as the Muslims start to spread into different places, what people need to know about belief becomes a little bit more vast. So what I needed to know about belief in Arabia, just dealing with Bedouins and stuff, is very limited. What I need to know about belief when I'm running up against the Roman and Persian empires, is a lot more complicated. So there's one strand in Islamic thought that was very particular about um, 
keeping that conversation extremely limited. Whatever Allah told us, whatever the Prophet told us, that's it. It's sufficient and forget everything else. Which is fine, it's a perspective. And then the other, and then that became like part of the study of theology. Okay? And then another, another group, the majority actually, would say, no, we can make it a little bit more than that. And we're going to call it Ilm and Kalam, which is the philosophical theology. Ilm and Kalam, philosophical theology. So Ibn Qudam is from the category of people who believe that we shouldn't do that. So he's saying that, uh, but this is a very long conversation. It's highly debated. Suffice it to say that a small group of scholars believe that we shouldn't engage in that at all. And a large group of scholars believe that it was perfectly reasonable and that we had to. And uh, this question of was it disapproved by the pious predecessors or not needs a lot of research and a lot of detailed conversation. If you're interested in such things, you may enroll in the Majlis Seminary courses on theology and Sheikh Fuad will give you more than you ever wanted to hear <laughs> about theology. <laughs> In the intro classes, it'll give you more than you ever wanted to hear about it. Uh, so, inshallah, if you're interested in that stuff, he's the man to take it up with. But what is the point that he's making here? The point that he's making here is that the word tawheed, for the early Muslims, what it meant to them was more of actually a spiritual reality than a theological reality. The spiritual reality was the person having within their heart an understanding that everything comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and no matter what's happening, it's all from Allah. It's a matter of the heart, right? And then later on it became understood as theology is the, um, like the study of what do we believe about Allah, what do we believe about the prophets and so on. It became rational theology. The fourth word is reminding, tadkir and remembrance, dhikr. Allah said in the Quran, and remind, for indeed the reminder benefits the believers. I would like to give a word of credit to this publisher. MashaAllah. I like the way that they um, their typesetting is quite good. MashaAllah. This is a good improvement in Islam in the West over the last 10-15 years. The books that we used to read 20 years ago, they were all really ugly. And it was like, you know, just to read the book was an act of tezkiyah. And it showed you something, like people really wanted to learn. And they, they weren't going to let anything get in the way. The translation would be horrible, like you really have to think about the translation in order to come to the right conclusion. It's really ugly, it's very difficult. Like look how beautifully laid out this is. Good spacing, good margins, the Arabic is put in the middle, it's made very nice. It's very easy to read, mashallah, it's a nice thing. By the way, classical Islamic books, they require jihad. In Arabic even. It's a, typesetting and stuff is a modern thing. The classical books, there's no paragraphs, there's no headings, there's no punctuation, there's nothing. So you have to like, be taught how to read a book. And you have to have some level of knowledge in order to read a book. Otherwise, it's not your business. <laughs> you go listen to someone tell you about it rather than reading it yourself. That's the way that they would. So they're fun too, but it's, it's very difficult. So he's saying, what about this word dhikr and tadkir? The Prophet ﷺ said, if you pass by the gardens of paradise, graze therein. They asked, and what are the gardens of paradise? So he said, the gatherings of dhikr. Okay, so the Prophet ﷺ said, إِذَا مَرَوْتُمْ بِرِيَالِ الْجَنَّةِ فَالْتَعُوا فِيهَا 
And they said, وَمَا رِيَضُ الْجَنَّةِ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فَقَالُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ حِلِقَ الذِّكْرِ He said, what are the gardens of paradise? They are the gardens of dhikr. Of dhikr. Uh, he said, they have turned this word to mean storytelling and the roaming sermons and pompous display of devotion that the gatherings of storytellers are about today. Oh man, this is a, this is a, a good tangent, an important one. Okay, first of all, one of the companions, they asked him, when the Prophet ﷺ said, I think it was Mu'adh ibn Jabal, when he said, what are the gatherings of dhikr? He said, they're the gatherings of knowledge. So even this, for example, like now in the minds of people, a gathering of dhikr is only if you sit and make dhikr. Like you say, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, la ilaha illallah, Allahu Akbar. Actually, some people even take it further than that. It's only a gathering of dhikr if you read a particular kind of dhikr. Like a particular kind of poem or a particular kind of qasida or whatever else. Then it's a gathering of dhikr. If not, then it's not a gathering of dhikr. So it's too much specification of the term. The Prophet ﷺ, by the statement of the companions who know him best, what he's meant by this is the gathering of dhikr, of remembrance of Allah, is a gathering of knowledge. You sit and you learn about the religion, this is better. Even the Prophet ﷺ, one time he came to the masjid, there were two circles. One of them, the people were sitting in the circle. This is the Azharis are like really big on these things. They said they come to the masjid and there's two gatherings. One of them was remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the other one was studying. The Prophet ﷺ was asked them, which one is which? They said, this one's doing this, they said, this one's doing this. He said, both of them are good. He said, both of them are good things. And I was sent as a teacher. So he went and he sat in the gathering of knowledge. That's where he was, And over and over again, you see the same concept. That all being said, what he is talking about here is now another thing. And subhanAllah, we thought this was a big issue 15 years ago. It's a f it's far exceeded our expectations in terms of the disastrous nature of this issue which is the gatherings of storytelling are not gatherings of knowledge one of the things you see in the, in the old books over and over and over again is this dichotomy that the storytellers that's something qusas shay you know alhamdulillah there's people who tell stories they get people riled up they get their emotions going and they tell them these beautiful stories usually they um, kind of like exaggerate the stories a little bit because it gets people more involved and like gets them into it and stuff and that's something and then people of knowledge are something and this this uh, this tension has always existed even in the time of Imam Abu Hanifa there's a story that Imam Abu Hanifa his mother had an issue like a fiqh issue she wanted she had a question in halal and haram so she came to Abu Hanifa and she's like, I have this situation. He's like, okay, how can I help you? And she's like, I want to go ask so-and-so. <laughs> to her son. Like her son is Imam Abu Hanifa. She tells her son, I want to, I, I want to go ask so-and-so. Who's the storyteller? Like he's known to be the guy who sits in the masjid and tells stories. And people love his stories and stuff like that. He's a storyteller, right? So she, she tells him, I want to go ask so-and-so. So Abu Hanifa's like, of course. I'll go with you. So this is awesome like the adab of a person of knowledge. He said, of course, my mother, whatever you wish. So he goes with her to where this guy has his gathering. She sends him in to ask the question. So now Abu Hanifa is going in to this guy to ask him the question in halal and haram. So he comes in and the guy's like, you know, Imam, 
in Imam Al-A'zam. Like you're here, this is a beautiful thing. Alhamdulillah, what do we honor? We have the honor of this visit, it's so great, everything else. He's like, listen, I have a question, my mother. She has this issue, she wants to know. This and this happened, is it halal, is it haram? The guy's like, you're asking me? <laughs> like, you're, I can't answer that question, this is for you to answer. He's like, listen, my mom, she wants to answer from you. So, what's your answer? The guy's like, what's your answer? And then I'll just say that, and then you can take that to her. So Abu Hanifa tells him the answer. So he's like, okay, yeah, that's the answer. And then she goes on and tells his mother the answer. <laughs> so this issue exists. It's an issue of like storytelling and emotional manipulation and like, you know, this whole situation. Now it's way beyond that. Like a person is only a person of knowledge if they know how to manipulate social media in order to get followers. That's how they become a person of knowledge. If they don't have that, then, you know, I've never heard of them before. You know, it's like, oh, okay. What do you mean, Aslan? Ibn Dakiq al Eid. There was a story of Ibn Dakiq al Eid. It's a great story. It's a huge tangent now. But, and just as I made fun of the storytellers, I'll tell the story of the storytelling. Uh, but Ibn Dakiq al Eid was a great scholar. Same period as these people, middle period scholar. He was known to be a mujtahid in the Shafi and Maliki schools. Like he was at that level. He was a huge, huge scholar. And during his time, they always wanted him to be the head chief justice. I think you would call it in English, right? The chief justice, the head judge. He was in Cairo. And he would always refuse. He said, no, I'm not going to work for you. You know, I'm independent. I don't need to work for the government. Uh, I'm, fine the I'm fine where I am. They would push him, they push him, they push him. Finally, he said, okay, fine. I'll take the position as the chief justice on one condition. And my condition is, you guys never, ever, 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 ever interfere in what I do. Don't even think about it. You know, he told, don't even think about interfering in what I do. I'm the judge. I declare what's halal and haram. I judge in the cases. You do not get involved in my issues. You know? So they're like, okay, fine. So he becomes the chief judge. Of course, all of the other judges, they respect him. He's the senior scholar of his time. So all the ulama, they hold him in the highest regard. And, you know, time passes, he rules, he rules, and then there's a situation that happens. Situation is that someone dies in Cairo, extremely wealthy person, who doesn't have any heirs. So one of the, like, governor-type people, you know, one of these political authorities, he's like, this is my chance to get all of this guy's money, you know. So he talks to someone, tells him, I want you to be the witness that this guy left some of his money to me. Right? So basically they're making a false case. They're going to try to steal this person's money, you know. But they have to show up in front of the judge with two witnesses that say this is, this is what happened in order to prove it, right? So who do they come to? They come to Ibn Diqiq and Eid. And they come in front of him. They say this is the situation. He says, okay, who are your witnesses? The guy who brought the case, who was like paid off basically, he says, uh, you know, there's me. And he says, and who's the other one? He says, it's the governor so-and-so. Let's just call him a governor. I don't know what you would call him, like councilman maybe or something, you know? And he says, okay, what does that mean to me? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, well, for us, this person is reliable. They're trustworthy, you know? And then Ibn Dikriq al-Aid tells him, this is why the whole for us thing. Like, we think that he's such and such. So Ibn Dikriq was like, وَمَنْ أَنْتُمْ وَحَتَّى يَكُونَ لَكُمْ وَعِنْدُ <laughs> he said, who are you? He writes this line of poetry. This is like lines of poetry. The line of poetry ends. 
You know, it means like, and who are you in the first place to say he's, he's trustworthy to me? And you, your opinion doesn't count either. <laughs> and he tells them, get out of my courtroom. You know, he kicks the guy out. And then they send him a letter and they say, uh, they say you know, the governor so-and-so wants to meet with you, you know, about this case. So when he gets, they bring him the letter in his court. When he gets the letter, he looks at it and he rips it up and he tells everyone, shut the court down. They shut the court down, they lock the doors of the courtroom, they lock everything, they close the whole thing down, they shut the whole thing down. Then he sent messengers to all the other judges who were in the courts around Cairo, told them all to shut all of their courts down, like civil disobedience. You know? They shut down the entire legal system, the judicial system, he shut down the entire judicial system in Cairo. And then like, of course the news gets to the rulers and they're like, what is going on? You know, they're like, you don't mess with the sheikh. Him and the took a position, you don't interfere. You told him you're gonna, you're, he can be the chief justice if you're not going to get involved in his issues. He took a position, you don't call him to come meet you so you can talk to him about your position. You know? It's done. So he shut the whole thing down. Then, like, of course, these people, they couldn't handle it, so they had to go to the higher, like, maybe the mayor couldn't handle it, they had to go to the governor, right? Maybe that's probably... The mayor couldn't handle it, they had to go to the governor. So finally, because the court system shut down now, like, all of your life is shut down. Nobody can register contracts, nobody can get married, nobody can solve disputes, nobody can do anything. The whole judicial system shut down. So, you know, eventually, long story short, the governor gets involved and he calls the mayor and he, or he calls the sheikh and he says, like, come on, please, like, can we reopen the system, you know? <laughs> can you solve this situation, so on and so forth? He's like, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You should tell him you shouldn't have done that. And uh, then he calls him in. He says, well, you know, so he's the mayor. He said, he, who are they to be sheikh? He said, he's the mayor, he has this position, and so on and so forth. He said, he's nothing to me. Not out of, like, degradation, but these people took it very serious. That the Sharia is in charge, you're not in charge. Like, you, the political establishment, you're not the one who's in charge. The Sharia is in charge. I'm the representative of the Sharia. So he's nothing in front of what I have to say, you know. And then, uh, you know, this whole situation. They, eventually, they resolved the situation. And uh, the court system opened again. All of this to say... Who are you to say who's who anyways? You know? People are like, well, I've never heard that before. And people always say that. Like, well, I've never heard that before. Like, so you've done an extensive study of what's been said? Because <laughs> I'd be surprised if you have. You know what I mean? People come to me, well, have you heard that hadith before? I always tell them, well, I haven't heard the hadith before. But then I'll always tell them, and I'm not an exhaustive resource on what's a hadith and what's not. Like, I've probably heard a couple thousand hadith in my life. There's 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 hadith. Just because I haven't heard it doesn't mean that it's not a hadith, you know? Uh, this, this thing, we have to be very, I've never seen this before. How come our community never does this? Did you do any sort of istiqra, you know, like a survey before you came to the conclusion that nobody's doing this, that it's never been said, that nobody's talking about this, so on and so forth? It's not usually the case. Anyway, storytelling. There's a, there's a long-standing tension between the storytellers and the people of knowledge. Long-standing tension. And the people of knowledge always have like their way of doing things, and you know, they teach and so on, and then the storytellers have their way of doing things. They're not always different. Sometimes they're in the same person. Sometimes you have great scholars who are also good storytellers and can captivate the people and stuff like that. It's not always the case. Like if you take someone like uh, Sheikh Omar Sulaiman, Hafidhullah, I believe he's a legitimate person of knowledge. 
and he tells a lot of good stories. I think they're useful. And I think that he has a lot of people who are um, Hasidim, people of jealousy and stuff like that. But I think overall, he does a lot of good work. I think he's a person of knowledge. He might tell a lot of stories, but he's a person of knowledge. Um, so it's okay. If a person wants to relate the stories of the early people and his admonishments, he should know that most of the stories that are out there are not true. Like the story of Prophet Yusuf loosened his waistband and saw Yaqub biting his hand, he's just giving story. And the story that Dawood told Uriya to prepare for war till he was slain. You know, many of these stories that stories like this are but harmful. So some of them are not only not true, some of them are actually harmful. Because they're giving people the wrong message. Uh, and some of these are very problematic. Like he's talking about the story of the allegation that Prophet Dawood uh, I don't know if it, anyway, I think it was Dawood, yeah, and the Christians they have this story that Dawood like saw this woman's uh, this, this man's wife and he was attracted to her so when he found out that she was married he took that man and put him on the front line so he would be killed in battle so then he can go and be with this man's wife we don't believe this obviously but it's mentioned in some of the stories of the previous scriptures, you know, some of them, not in the scripture, but in the people. Like the Christians might mention the story, some of them, I don't know if it's exhaustive again, but you might find that. And uh, so he's saying that these stories are wrong and you have to be careful with them. The sermons, of Rome, the sermons of roaming sermons and pompous display of devotion are extremely harmful to the layman as they talk about love, being together, and the pain of separation, while most of the attendants are simple folks whose hearts are filled with the desi desires and love for imagining such things. Therefore, these stories only arouse what their souls hold within, bursting up the fire of their desires and making them shout out loud. All of this is but corruption. So basically what he's saying is that when these storytellers come, they know what is in the nefs of the person. Right? The nefs is, as we've always talked about, it's like your base self. So they come and they tell a story that plays on that nefs. And you think it's like a pious display, but actually it's a matter of nefs. Uh, and this is, of course, a, a very subtle thing. It's a very subtle thing, but it's a very interesting thing. We talked about this before in the context of like, maybe someone goes to Salat all the time, but they do it out of nefs. They're going to prayer all the time. But they're doing it because when they go to prayer, they feel really good about themselves and other people look at them like they're pious and so on and so forth. And now this is like, so they think they're going for Allah, but there's actually another motivation that's going on that's deeper inside that has to be analyzed in order to know if it's there or not. This is true about many things. Sometimes the roaming sermons contain bold claims pertaining to love of Allah Most High, and this is severely harmful. Even a group of farmers stopped their profession completely and began making such claims. <laughs> so, you know, uh, one of the things to note here that he's getting at is that one of, one of our teachers would always say, beware the maker of claims. Beware the maker of claims. Beware the maker of claims. A lot of people make a lot of claims in their uh, things that they're saying. The fifth word is hikmah which means knowledge and acting by it. Ibn Qutaybah, may Allah have mercy on him, said, a man is not wise until he combines knowledge and action upon such knowledge. However, today this word is used for doctors and astrologers. So the hukum, like the, the hakim, person of hikmah, would be understood to be the doctor or the person who works in astrology. He's saying the original meaning of this is to have understanding and to act by it. Okay. 
need to rein in my commentary. We're going to end up like we always are. We're going to take us 20 years to finish this book if I keep this up. Um, let's do section four really quickly, and then we'll stop at section five, inshallah. Section four, the praiseworthy disciplines. Know that praiseworthy knowledge is of two types. Mahmud. It's knowledge is Mahmud. Praise of two types. Number one, knowledge that deserves the utmost praise. The more one possesses it, the better. This is the knowledge about Allah and His attributes, His actions, his, and the wisdom in making the afterlife follow this world. This is knowledge that is sought for its own sake and knowledge that leads to happiness in the hereafter. It is the bottomless ocean. Men only circle around its shores and edges to the best of their ability. This is basically the knowledge of Allah, things that benefit us in the next life. Number two is knowledge that is only praised to a certain degree. This is previously mentioned knowledge needed in fulfilling communal obligations. Knowledge of all communal obligations is needed, but it can be studied either according to need or exhaustively. So he's just giving this breakdown. Therefore, be one of two men, a man who is busy or woman, who is busy with himself, or a man who devotes his time to others after having worked on himself. This is your two choices. Be someone who has devoted themselves to working on themselves. Or someone who has worked on themselves and now is helping others. Uh, what is he getting at? The primary issue here is that a person has to work to fix themselves. We have to always be working to fix ourselves. I believe that one of the biggest problems of the Muslim community actually is that you cannot have a Muslim community without people being really dedicated to working on themselves. And then you'll have people who have served community or been in community for decades and decades and decades, but they don't take seriously working on themselves. And so they have these um, pitfalls that are extremely detrimental. Therefore, be one of two, as you may. Beware of focusing on fixing others before fixing yourself. Work on bettering and purifying your inner self from reprehensible characteristics like greed, jealousy, ostentation, So funny. It's blinking. Watch this one stops working too. Let's see. Work on better. Actually, this one is probably better. I thought the other one was better. This one is better. Subhanallah. Has less echo. Stop for a while. Put you through that punishment for all that time. Work on better, bettering and purifying your inner self from reprehensible characteristics like greed, jealousy, ostentation, and vanity before fixing your outward conduct. This will be discussed by the will of Allah in the quarter on destructive flaws. In the footnote it says this is the second book in this series, Discipline the Path to Growth. Um, it's interesting and nice that they made it the second book, but it's not actually the second book in reality. Uh, it's the third book in reality of where it falls in the original work. should be the third section. Um, but anyways, they made it the second. That's fine. When we study it here, we'll make it the third. Because we'll follow the, uh, the author's order, not the translator's order. May Allah reward them for their efforts. If you are not done with that, do not occupy yourself with communal obligations, for there are many others who are doing that. A person who ruins himself at the expense of trying to fix others is a fool. He is like a person who has scorpions in his sleeves, but focuses on driving flies away from others. 
If you are finished with purifying your inner self and what a far-fetched goal that is, focus on communal obligations, but proceed gradually. Begin with the Book of Allah and then move on to the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then learn the sciences of the Qur'an, which among others include knowledge of tafsir, knowledge of nasikh and mansukh, abrogation, and equivocal muhkam and unequivocal verses. Uh, this is flipped. Unequivocal is the thing that's clear, right? Yeah, unequivocal should be muhkam and equivocal should be mutashabin. The same applies to the sunnah. After this, focus on jurisprudence and legal theory and move on to other sciences as much as your lifespan allows. Beautiful. That's a beautiful passage, actually. But we'll skip it right now. As long as your lifespan allows. Do not dedicate your whole life to the study of one particular <laughs> discipline and hope of covering the topic exhaustively. There is a lot of knowledge out there, but life is short. These disciplines are tools whereby other things are accessed, and the ultimate goal must not be forgotten when studying these things that are sought for the purpose of achieving something else. There's a lot of wisdom in that paragraph. A lot of times we get caught up in the things that are not the actual goal. And, um, and it diverts us from what really matters. Yeah. Allah help us and guide us, inshallah. No one have any questions or comments or anything? Yes. Yeah. So in this issue of Sayyidina Dawood salam and this uh, false story attributed to him, and it raises a broader question of, you know, Christianity, Judaism, previous scriptures, how much is that part of what we study, how much of it is not, how much things do we take, how many things do we not take, and so on. Um, this would definitely not be considered something that's kind of primary to Islamic studies. Um, Unless maybe that's like, it, it, you know, it could be like a secondary topic that someone wants to, after they've got a good foundation in Islamic studies disciplines, they might explore some of these things. The general rule the Prophet ﷺ said is that as to the things that's narrated about the people before you, um, like ben, ben, um, don't reject them and don't accept them. Don't reject them and don't accept them. And what agrees with what we have then, you know, we take it with a grain of salt, essentially. Uh, if it agrees, so basically it has to be independently uh, verified in a sense. Like it, it needs to already be something that would be, like either it's something that we already have and so we accept it, or it's something that we don't already have so we take it with a grain of salt. And if it doesn't contradict anything that we have, then, you know, it was said, but we would leave it kind of like in that space. 
it was something that was said and we don't give it too much uh, thought. Uh, the books of tafsir in particular are filled with these things. <coughs> and so when one is reading tafsir, they have to be very careful about this. That they know that this is something that's put a lot in books of tafsir and it needs to be held in the light of other disciplines of Islamic studies to figure out if it's true or not. And the same thing would apply to basically any other philosophy or any other worldview or religion or something like that. And actually, subhanAllah, this is a principle that applies quite broadly, which is that if I want to be able to benefit from other things, I have to first know who I am. And if I know who I am, then it enables me to benefit from all kinds of other things. But if I don't know who I am and I'm trying to benefit from everything, I just end up lost. And this, by the way, happens with many Muslims. Because the, the general thing that you see with people in, in the Muslim community is, I'll just hop around to whatever I can find benefit in. But it might not be like coming together properly. You know, It could all be okay, but it might not come together properly. If I just go to this thing, then I go to that thing, and I go to that thing, and I go to that thing, and I go to that thing, then I end, I end up in the end with nothing actually. I know with a bunch of ideas, but there's no actual route to it, you know? It's like if, we're, if we GPS something, and it gives us three options, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna go with this one. And then a third of the way into the trip, you're like, actually, I'm gonna go with the other one. You go with the other one. And then after a little bit, you're like, actually, I wanna go with the other one. You go with the other one. Like, you end up in the end, the trip took you like forever. Maybe you didn't even get where you were trying to go. So this, this is a general principle. It, it applies in multiple different layers, maybe concentric circles going out, is that like, I have to have something that I'm anchored myself in. And that's why in the old books and stuff, they always talk about the, how important it is to have a central teacher. Like I have something, and my, if, if I don't know how to do that, then my goal should be, how do I assess whether or not I should be learning from someone? then once I've assessed that and decided that I should learn from someone, then I learn from this person. So that I can get out of the um, like reading and writing stage. <laughs> once I get out of the reading and writing stage, then it's easy. I can you know, benefit from other people and I have some sort of foundation. I know how to ride the bike without training wheels now, so now I can go different places that I wouldn't have been able to go otherwise. But um, it's, it's actually a very important issue. Because there's in the beginning period, if we don't get our legs strong enough, we can't ever walk. It's very easy to walk actually, but I can walk once I get my legs in order. So I have to uh, do that. And when we look at these other religions and stuff, it's the same thing. Yeah. Even when I always tell people like, well, how do you respond to this doubt? How do you respond to that doubt? And so on. This is not the way to learn your religion. The way to learn your religion is to actually study the religion. After you study the religion a little bit, if you want to answer doubts and you want to think about how to respond to this and how to respond to that and so on, then think about that. But after you have a little bit of foundation. And actually most of the questions you have are already going to be answered in the foundation. So it's not, uh, there's a process to go through. We have to be patient a little bit. Uh, I can, you know, and this, it's funny because we have like a level of resistance in this when it comes to Islam. But it's true about everything. Like pretty much any discipline in the world, it follows the same concept, you know. Uh, no one becomes a good poet by just writing a bunch of poetry. Unless they're like really, really gifted, one in a million type person. They become a good poet by reading a lot of poetry. 
and then writing a lot of poetry, right? So you know, how does a person become really good at writing? They become really good at writing by reading good books. And they, get a fla they start to get a flavor of what is, what is writing actually, you know? Uh, Abu Hanifa had thousands, literally thousands of sheikhs. And he had one sheikh. It's a paradox, right? So it, but, it's, but both are true, and it's extremely important. He had thousands of sheikhs, and he only had Hamad. Rahimahullah. Stayed with Hamad. Hamad was his life. Stayed with Hamad from age 22 to age 40. Stayed with Hamad. Until Hamad died. He named his son Hamad. He never, never stretched his legs in the direction of the house of Hamad in his life. Never left it, never had a salah after, after Hamad passed away except that he made dua for Hamad. Uh, every, his whole life is Hamad. And at the same time, he has thousands of teachers. But everything is Hamad. You know? So this is a very, this is a very beautiful thing, actually. And it relates to this. I hope it's clear. Yes. Yeah, so in, he said in the seminary, you make a distinction between the hadith scholars, essentially, muhaddithun, and the fuqaha, and the scholars of fiqh. Because the hadith scholars are the ones who learn the narrations and they transmit them. And the scholars of fiqh are the ones who understand them. They take the hadith and they're able to understand it and make sense of it. And there's many stories about this, actually. Um, like there's a story, I think it was Abu Yusuf, who was the top student of Abu Hanifa, and one of the hadith scholars of his time. Someone came and asked the Hadith scholar a question. He said, I'm not sure. And he said, what do you think to Abu Yusuf? And he said, it's such and such is the answer. And then the scholar of Hadith said, where did you get that from? He said, I got it from the Hadith that I learned from you. <laughs> and narrated it and he told him this is the understanding of it that answers the question, right? So Musa's question is, would you consider the storytellers uh, scholars of Hadith from the storytellers? No. Qusas are a different thing. Uh, hadith scholars are usually very strict, actually, because they understand the discipline and they understand all of the conditions for acceptance and rejections of a narration. The storytellers are different. They're usually kind of like bringing stories that maybe they're not that true, you know, um, and they're not so concerned with how true they are because their goal is to kind of like inspire people to good or whatever else it might be. But the Hadith scholar is very concerned about that because they don't want anything attributed to the Prophet that wasn't from him. So there would be different categories. Too. Yeah. And Hadith scholars, of course, are great scholars. It's a great discipline. And they're not always exclusive. Many scholars of fiqh are also knowledgeable in Hadith. Many, not, many scholars of Hadith are very knowledgeable in fiqh. Usually it was the case. Where was this passage? The last passage 
These disciplines are tools whereby other things are accessed and the ultimate goal must not be forgotten when studying things that are sought for the purpose of achieving something else. This one? Uh, do not dedicate your whole life to the study of one particular discipline. I think what he's trying to say is that like, don't spend your whole life only in fiqh. Don't spend your whole life only in hadith. Don't spend your own... Because all of these disciplines have a reason why you're studying them. And so they play into each other. I, I think that's what he's referring to. He's making an argument for like a well-rounded, how to develop well-rounded Well, yeah. So you should be well-rounded, yeah. This is part of Islam, you know. I think, ideally, the Muslim scholar is well-rounded. And not just uh, in the Islamic disciplines. This is why it takes so much time, actually, uh, that people don't realize, you know. They're like, well, I studied for five years, they should study for five years. Or I studied for eight years, they should study for eight years. It doesn't really work that way. Part of the reason it doesn't work that way is because the person who's supposed to be teaching the religious sciences has to bring them to bear on everything. So if they don't have a level of well-roundedness, like they probably need to understand a little bit about business and medicine and engineering and the social sciences and the humanities. And they actually have to have a little bit of flavor in many different fields. Otherwise, they can't legitimately deal with Islam in the modern world. You know? So they always say in fatwa, in fatwa you have two issues. You have the issue of what is the rule and how to understand how to apply that rule to a context. And actually the context piece, as difficult as the rule piece is, the context piece sometimes is even harder than the rule piece. Yeah, so uh, definitely you know, we should seek to be well-rounded. Inshallah, may Allah help us. I don't know how we're going to do that. But Allah help us. Okay. Subhanakum bihamdik nishadu wa la ilaha illa anastafirkum tubu ilayk. Allahumma inna nasaluka an huda wa tuqa wa la'afaq wa fina wa mustunna bi sifrika jameel wa mustunna bi sifrika jameel Allahumma inna nasaluka an afu wa afiyah wa mu'afaq wa da'ima fi dini wa dunia wa al-akhira Rabbana atina fi dunia hasanatan wa fi al-akhirati hasanatan wa qina adhabu nar Rabbana la tuzin qulubana ba'da id hadaytana wa habalana min ladunka rahma innaka antal wahab Rabbana atina min ladunka rahmatan wa hiyyit lana min amrina rashada nasrum min allahi wa fathum qareebu wa bashar al-mu'minin اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وزقنا اجتنابا اللهم زقنا حسن خاتمة اللهم زقنا حسن خاتمة اللهم عنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا عالم السر منا لا تهلك الستر عنا وعافنا وعفو عنا وكنا نحيك كنا أيقظ قلوبنا لك من البهن من قبلك عنك وجعل آخر كلامنا لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله عدد كمال الله وكما يليق بكمال سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المسلمين الحمد لله رب العالمين بارك الله فيكم إن شاء الله I give you a heads up I have to do something online at 12.15. So if anyone you know, wants to talk and stuff, it's totally fine. But just know that I'll have to step out around that time. Inshallah.